You're listening to the Pop Tart Podcast. Girls down. You already know. Playing these cool girls with these cool lives. You guys were getting it on with hot grunge boys in Seattle. I can't play just the girlfriend. What are your feelings about supernatural stuff in general? To fight against that inner you know, voice that's saying like, don't take too much and oh, don't, don't speak too loud. And I'm the direct female director and there's all the guys. This was a little more high end, maybe a little too high end for you. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Pop-Tarts. I'm Emily Rems. I'm Callie Watts. We're both editors of Bust Magazine in New York City. We love talking to each other about pop culture. We love talking to you about pop culture. And today's guest is such a gifted actor, producer, director, and activist, and has been lighting up our screens for such a long time. We are truly thrilled to be speaking with her today. Kira Sedgwick. Started off in showbiz in 1982 on one of my favorite soap operas, Another World. You can ask me to sing the theme song anytime for you and I shall. When I'm with you, I take you take me away to you another world. And then quickly, she became a bona fide movie star in films including Oliver Stone's Born on the Fourth of July, Cameron Crowe's Singles, Something to Talk About, and a horror flick that I personally really enjoyed, 2012's The Possession. She is perhaps best known for her starring role as Deputy Chief Brenda Lee Johnson on the TNT crime drama The Closer for which she won a very well-deserved Golden Globe and an Emmy before the show ended its seven-season run in 2012. Now, Kira is starring in the new ABC sitcom Call Your Mother, where she plays an Iowa empty nester named Jean, who grows tired of living thousands of miles away from her grown children in L.A., so she surprises them by showing up there unannounced (laughs) to reinsert herself into their lives. We have so much to talk about. Welcome, Kira. Yay! Thank you. Thanks so much for having me, you guys. did it. Yes. (laughs) So let's start, if we can, with your origin story. You are that rare breed of person who was actually born and raised in New York City. There are so few. And you've been a professional actor since you were 16. Can you give our listeners just a little bit of an overview of your journey from city kid in Manhattan to Hollywood mainstay that you are today? Okay. Well, um, yes, I did. I was born and raised in New York. Um, I'm like a fourth generation New Yorker, my mom, my grandmother, my, um, so we, we are, we've been there a long time. And And Edie Sedgwick is your cousin, right? The Warhol superstar. That's right. That's right. That's right. Um, and I never did meet Edie. In fact, I think she died when I was one. Didn't mm. she die in 66 or something like that? Um, or no maybe overlap. I was six. Maybe it was 71. I can't remember. But yes, no overlap. Don't date um, yourself. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I was born in 65. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, growing up in New York is amazing. I mean, you, I think you grow up really, really quickly in New York. And um, 
I was a very serious child. Um, and, uh, at 12, I knew I wanted to be an actor. And at 16, I got my first acting job on another world. As you mentioned, it's so funny because I didn't even remember that there was a theme song. That is hilarious. (laughs) I wish I knew it by heart. Um, yes. And I, I played, uh, a runaway and I was on the show for about a year and a half. And then, uh, and then I didn't want to renew my contract because I was off to be a movie star and, you know, it didn't quite, you know, work out quite as easily as that. But yes, I did break into movies, um, a couple of years after I finished on, uh, another Amundo, another world. And I also did a lot of plays in New York and, um, yeah. And then I, you know, I would go out to Los Angeles to work. I never, I, I lived out here for what I lived out in Los Angeles for one year, but really I would always come back to New York. And I, and then I married somebody who, you know, was, he's from Philly, but he had lived in New York from the time he was 17. He moved to New York when he was 17, Kevin Bacon. And so we really lived in LA, I mean, in New York, and we came out to LA when we wanted to and needed to. Awesome. You know, I, you're shooting Call Your Mother in L.A. now. Is that right? Yes, that's right. That's right. I have to say I've seen every episode so far. Mm-hmm. And you are such a comforting presence in that role. Yeah. You really make me miss my mom, who I haven't seen at all since the yeah, pandemic began. It gives me heavy mom feels. I miss my heavy mom, mom so feels. much when I watch it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but that's not to say that your character, Jean, is anything like my mom at all because no. she's not. I um, <laughs> That's okay. I don't know if that's good or bad, but yeah. No, but I mean, it's a nice fantasy to imagine a mom who will just show up and try to cook for me during a pandemic. My mom hates New York, has never, she visited me once on my second wedding when I got, when we renewed, renewed our wedding. But other than that, oh, and then she wouldn't come to my house and they stayed at the beach. Oh my God. Okay. As comforting as it is, though, as a show, I find it actually, it's a little bit jarring to see you playing this woman. And I know that we're only like five episodes in and that there's going to be this whole character arc. But I feel like your character, Jean, like her kids and like her pseudo almost kind of love interest, like everybody just walks all over her. And as a fan, I'm so accustomed to seeing you in The Closer as oh. this brilliant investigator who doesn't take any shit from anybody. I'm just wondering what it's been like for you taking on this sort of much more vulnerable character and how does it resonate with you both in real life as a mother and in real life as a daughter playing this specific mother? Yeah, that's funny. That's interesting. I don't know. I hadn't thought about her as being a doormat. I mean, I feel like she makes a lot of rules and um, and has with her kids. So I, I don't know. Um, I also, you know, very much felt like even though vulner- even though you know Brenda Lee was a was an ass kicker. I mean, she definitely was a vulnerable thing, you know. And I think that that's sort of what made her so you know wonderfully three dimensional is that she could be you know, totally on top of everything at work and completely like had no understanding of herself at all. And also could be, you know, tough as nails, quote unquote, that overused phrase, but also be incredibly vulnerable and fragile as we all are. So, um, so I think that, um, 
I think that that Jean is a lot stronger than than um, maybe she appears. Um, and uh, but I I love playing this character. I mean, I feel like um, I feel like being mom is really really complicated. And I think that being a mother of adult children is really complicated. Yeah. And I think that you know the dance that you have with adult children, where you're kind of like stepping into their life, stepping out of their lives, stepping into their lives, and like you know, you're kind of looking for permission, but then asking for forgiveness and like the whole, you know, I mean, it's like, and they're, they're pushing you away, but they're pulling you close. I mean, it's a very confusing, um, and you also know so much more about them. My mom tells me, you know, so much more about them. Like when you're young, your mom doesn't tell you all this stuff. I know so much about my mom. I know everything. Yeah. Right. Is is it too much? Is it a little too much? I mean, she's, I love her. She's a piece. (laughs) yeah exactly she's a piece of work I mean right I feel that way about my mom too I hopefully I think that my my I mean you know I I would hate to think that my kids think I'm a piece of work but I probably am I mean who birthed you you gotta love your mom (laughs) yeah right exactly to me my mom is still as much of a mystery now as she was when I was a toddler oh really (laughs) she's a a black box oh Mm. I know everything about my mom <laughs> There's so many styles. Yeah. So, you, you know, you never, uh, moms are as varied as people are. I'm so glad that you brought up how vulnerable your closer character is too. Like I, I was just thinking about in one of the very earliest, I don't even know if it was the first episode or the third episode, like she just got into town and everyone was being super sexist and she was just starting to reveal like some food issues. And I'm someone who has had food issues for her entire life. And there's just this scene where she's like in the fetal position with a yeah. ding dong. That's right. and, <laughs> and I just like, I was just wondering like how you felt about that specific part of her vulnerability, because it, it really struck me like so indelibly that I still think about it sometimes. I'm glad. I'm really glad. Um, you know, it was something that was written into the script and I was like, James, like this has to be a thing. Like, like she has, you know, I mean, you know, ding dongs and sugar is her comfort, you know? And I mean, for so many of us, that is the case. And for so many of us, we struggle. Like I don't hard, I hardly know a woman who looks at a piece of chocolate cake and doesn't have a feeling about it. And it's not just the food, it's a feeling. It's like, a, that's going to save me or that's going to hurt me or I'm not allowed or I deserve it, you know, like everything. It's like all the things, right? And I think that, you know, food and feelings are very intertwined. I hear you about that. I am totally in the same boat as you. Food has been, you know, I definitely went through my years of having eating issues and um, it's still a day to time for me. And so... I didn't want to reveal, uh, you know, um, you know, uh, Brenda as a compulsive eater, but I did want her to be like, this is what she does. This is where her comfort is. And this is what she hides from the world. And this is where we see her, her soft squishy bits. And I loved that about her. And I absolutely like, it was a very important thing that, that we, that, that, you know, the, the, that, that continued. I don't know that he, that he really had the plan for it to continue, but I was like, this is one of the reasons I'm taking this part. So like, we're going to continue this story, you know? <laughs> That's so interesting that you insisted on that. Cause it, it did come through. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. 
I'm very curious about the nuts and bolts of how our entertainment that we're consuming now is actually being made during a pandemic. I know that you were supposed to start filming of Call Your Mother last spring, like right when COVID started, and then it delayed everything. Yeah. So then when did you start where are you filming? What kind of bubble are you in? And how are you all managing to make things for us to enjoy at home safely? Yeah. Like, how, how are you making it work? Yeah, it's hard. I mean, it's definitely not easy. And I feel super grateful to be doing it under any circumstances. Um, I really do feel like now more than ever, you know, people are consuming entertainment. And I also feel like for me, you know, I... I really think that people are coming are bumping up against family in a way that they weren't before, whether they're having to move back home or they're having to just come to grips with the fact that like, who's the A team and is there a problem with my A team? And do I need to like work out some shit with my A team? Meaning like your family is nothing like bumping up against like mortality that makes you go, okay, so, you know, let me like work some stuff out. So I think that, you know, having, I mean, I love that Call Your Mother deals with all that stuff. And I feel like they do and we do. Um, and uh, so in terms of the logistics, I mean, yes, we literally were about to start. We were pre- scheduled to start like the third week in March and then everything shut down last year. And um, so it was really sad, you know, it was a long wait. And so once we finally got to it. Um, What it is, is it's testing every day, really, that you're working. It's testing, getting two tests on the days that you're shooting. You're wearing your mask, um, I would say, 98% of the time. It's literally between action and cut, you take off your mask. As soon as it's cut, you put your mask back on. And you. so you're having to rehearse with your masks for... You know, in, in sitcom, you, you rehearse for um, three days and you shoot for two days. And, you know, well, first of all, we don't have a live audience, which is sad, you know, and I think that we would, I think that's a missing piece. I mean, I think that that's part of what multicam is, is that, you know, you hear the laughter of the audience and you, and you feed off of that. And it's a, it's a conversation, you know, just like it is in a play, it's a conversation. So I think that we are definitely, I know I'm missing it on an ego level because I know that (laughs) people laughing and like, you know, people laugh on stage for like, you know, the first two takes. And then by the third take, they're like, we hate you. And we hate that joke, you know? So it's like, you have to try not to go. And I hate me too, you know? So, so there's definitely, you know, that, that happens, but But so, um, and rehearsing with masks on, is just really weird. Like trying to be funny with your mask on. And I remember the first time that people took their masks off and I was like, wow, you're, you're the lower half of your face is moving way too much. And I'm totally distracted. And I can't remember my lines, you know? So it's really weird. It's like suddenly you're supposed to integrate all of these things at once. And it's all very, it is challenging, you know? Um, and I also think that in some ways, you know, the tribe of performers and people who support performers are really like traditionally built for this, taking care of each other in this way. You know, I think that that when you do this kind of work, whether it's a play or a, or a musical or, or a film or, or a concert, you know, you're all, your cast and your crew are like, you become a family and you look out for each other. And this is a deeper level to that. I mean, you're really like, you have my life in your hands, like literally, you know, 
And, but I do think that we're suited for this. You know, I, I, I think that, you know, we are creatures that tend to create families quickly. And so we have been taking care of each other. There's 120 people here who have been taking, looking out for each other, taking care of each other and creating and not seeing anyone. I mean, I see like nobody, I see my kids, you know, who are in a bubble with me, but like that's, and a one friend and that's really pretty much it. So, so it's a lonely, sad time, but I'm really happy to be doing a funny sitcom. You know, I really, really am. You know, something I really admire about you is that I've always seen your name come up through the years in conjunction with various forms of activism, mainly environmental causes, but then more and more progressive political initiatives like Swing Left. I remember seeing you work so hard to flip Red States Blue, as we all know that that made a huge huge difference in this most recent election. As a celebrity, I'm sure... Every cause wants your time and your attention. So I'm just so curious about how you decide where to focus your efforts because they are so considerable. And what was your experience with this most recent election and your part as a a grassroots organizer? Yeah, grassroots is really key, right? Um, Okay, so I'm a, you know, I... I am fiercely civic minded. You know, I just think that like, you know, we are invited to spend a short time on this earth and we have to take care of the earth and we have to take care of each other. And, um, there's a lot of inequality in the world and there's a, a lot of environmental abuse in the world. And there's, uh, a lot of, um, racism in the world. And there's a lot of, uh, sexism and homophobia and like those are sort of the things that that make me that that agitate me that get me enervated and make me want to to seek to be the change I want to see um so uh I think that when I had my first kid um at 23 in 1989 I suddenly went oh shit, like there's a whole planet to worry about after I die, you (laughs) know, because hopefully this kid's going to live and then maybe he'll want children. And, you know, I just started to really think about like the seven generations and, and, you know, I just became terrified. I mean, I think the more I educated myself about what was really going on, I think the more terrified I became and the more and the more um, activated I became and active, activist-minded I became. I mean, I growing up in New York, I know we went to, like, no nukes, you know, concerts and, and definitely did some marches in Washington for abortion rights and stuff like that. But this was something that was, like, I don't know, just felt really scary and really big. And we had a moment in the 90s where we were really mm-hmm. aware of what was going on and, you know, uh, things were seemed to be possibly moving in the right direction and people were actually was talking about Save the world was that the concert? It, it was. It was the greenhouse effect. That whole. I don't even really remember. Save the world. What oh I no, that was. We are the world that I'm thinking of. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> no, like there was a Time magazine cover, and you know, suddenly everyone was like. I mean, I knew about the greenhouse effects because I've been educating myself earlier. But like suddenly, in like 1990, it was on the cover of Time magazine, and everyone went, "What the fuck is happening?" And oh my god, this is so scary. And we have to hold these people, you know, hold the gas and oil companies to task, and we have to make a change. We have to make a shift. And we were sort of moving, sort of moving in that direction, even though really we should have been doing it, you know, a lot long before. Um, And we now know that 
the gas and oil companies did their own research in the 1950s and 60s and 70s and knew exactly what they were doing and pivoted also. But anyway, in the 90s, we were like sort of on the right track. And then we went, oh, forget it. And then they they sent all, you know, and they, they poured money into all this different disinformation campaigns. And suddenly, you know, no one was talking about it anymore. And it was like, and they, you know, we were going to lose jobs if we, if we, you know, uh, invested in green, green energy and, you know, carbon, you know, our carbon footprint. And uh, we just suddenly were like, we suddenly lost ourselves in the mire and we all got very confused because it was confusing because they were pumping so much money into it. So that was really scary and depressing for me. And frankly, I feel like I've been sort of spitting into the wind for the last 30 years <laughs> while we have been like, you know, just shitting the bed over and over and over again. And suddenly now we're like, oh God, we really, we really have to do something now. Meanwhile, you know, we all know what the scientists say and we need to do twice as much as what we're planning. But at least... I take solace in the fact that we're really talking about this stuff and that most people understand that we actually have something to do. Maybe with. what we really need is the we are the world of environmental songs. You know, just so you know, that was like a total bomb. That whole thing was like it was like it was like a moment in time and it completely didn't do what like it was. Like we can do like a virtual marathon. It's gonna be a bummer. Hands across the world. So what happened was, I mean, you know, was that that happened and suddenly I went, oh, my God. And then someone told me about Swing Left in 2017 and they were like, you know, and Swing Left is an organization that um, that really figured out states. They, they did like algorithms and, and did a lot of research in these possible purple states, possible swing states. And so we, Kevin and I became very involved in the 2018 House elections. And we did a lot of footwork with them and we did a lot of, um, you know, advertising with them and a lot of like support. We like did part, you know, did stuff for them, like, you know, and, and, and gave voice to that. And then 2018 happened and it was such a wonderful thing that we were able to switch, slip, flip the house. At least one of the branches of government was not, not Republican. And, and I feel like they had a lot to do and we were all very supportive of swing left during the, the most recent election. And yes, I feel, look, I feel really hopeful for the first time in four years. I've been mm -hmm. like many people, I'm sure just like completely like, like tra traumatized on a daily basis <laughs> yeah, by yeah. <laughs> having a racist, you know, sexist man in the white house, you know, or yeah. whatever. I mean, that, that's an, that's sort of the nice way to say it. And, you know, um, and I, I just, I feel really, I feel hopeful. And I also know that it's hard when you don't have, um, you know, the Senate and the house, like, like a big margin and it's hard to move things along, um, in a stagnated, you know, fighting polarized Washington. And I'm hopeful, more hopeful than I have been in four years. And I think this is a very good administration that has us heart in the right place and has seen a lot of grief and a lot of sadness and, you know, is like almost an open wound yeah. to Biden. And I think frankly, at a time when we are all open wounds because yeah. of, you know, no matter what party you're in, people are hurting, you know? And so he gets that and he is empathy personified. I have to, for me, for me, I know, I'm sure a lot of people don't feel that way, but for me, he is, he has seen grief right up here, close and personal as we all have right now. And so I think that there's something really, hopefully coalescing about that. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that made well, me feel so much better about stuff. Thank you. I'm so glad. <laughs> As I mentioned in the intro, you're probably best known for your role in The Closer, which was such a big hit on TNT 
ran all the way from 2005 to 2012. It's a big chunk of time. And something that I found very interesting when I was reading about that project was that when you had the opportunity to do the show, you didn't want to uproot your family. You had two school-age kids. And so your husband, you mentioned, is also a movie star, Kevin Bacon. He agreed to stay home with your kids in New York so you could go to LA and star in your own big procedural show. I think that really says a lot about the household that you've created with your partner. Teamwork makes the dream work. Exactly. It's a testament to why you have a marriage that has lasted 33 years in Hollywood where that is totally unheard of. Like that never happens, but it has happened for you guys. How do you look back on the decisions you've made as a couple now in terms of who was able to work and when? Yeah. You know, I mean, I think that, um, what it's funny. It's like, when you say that all, like, all I think is about how utterly imperfectly we did it. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, um, that was a beautiful offer, you know, that he made and, 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 you know, for the first few years, that's what we did. He really didn't work during those five to six months that I was working and he brought them out every other weekend. And it was, it was really amazing. Um, and we have, organically and also consciously made the choice of like, we're not going to work at the same time, but also like the world has sort of universe kind of supported that in a weird way. So it's, it was, it was not, not unheard of for us to, you know, for me to like say no to work, but, but, it, or, or him, but, but it was um, not the norm. We really managed to somehow tag team pretty effortlessly. Is there anything um, you said no to that you, regret later? Yes, I do. But I don't want to tell you what that is because I think it feels really shitty for the person who's like, oh, great. So I got like best sloppy seconds on that job, you know? Um, plus I, I feel just like that, that kind things, of thing would haunt me. I would be like, yeah, uh, it, it, it was a little haunting. It was a little haunting, but that's okay. I mean, that's okay. You know what we, you know what, at, what I think to myself is that part wasn't for me Yeah, because, mm-hmm. because so-and-so did it, you know, and she was amazing. And I, I don't know. I trust, I trust the plan. Like I don't look back on the past and go like, God, I wish I'd done it differently. But I do look back on the past and go, you know, it wasn't perfect. Like we didn't do a lot of things perfectly. Like, you know, and I did, I made the choice to do the closer and the kids didn't want to move out uh, to the West coast. And to this day, they're grateful that I didn't move them out to the West coast. Having said that, East you know, coast is the I miss, best coast, man. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Having said that, like I miss stuff, like I miss stuff, you know, having your mom not around, you know, in those school age times, like that much out of the years, like you miss stuff. So, so, um, but I do think that we, I think that one of the things that makes our marriage work is that we allow each other to grow and change and like have your own independent life. And I think that that is really, um, a lovely, a lovely thing to do. Definitely. I agree. You know, like I was just thinking about how you saw, you met my partner, Luscious Logan, very briefly when we were setting up. He's our our show's producer. You know, he and I are not movie stars and we still, you know, like have to really juggle to make sure everyone's needs are getting met over the long haul of we've been together for 16 years, which is just a fraction of how long you guys have. But it's just, I can't even imagine having those kind of that kind of a juggling act with like two movie stars in one household. 
Yeah, we don't really think of each other uh, ourselves as movie stars. <laughs> but let's, like, just you sh- have this, let's say the schedules of movies. Yeah, stars. right. Exactly. Yeah, we're busy. We're busy. Thankfully, God, mm-hmm. we're both so hyper. I think if we weren't busy, we'd be like tearing our hair out. <laughs> but I actually think it's been kind of an interesting time because you know we can't, you can't be busy. You, I mean, we weren't busy for like nine months. You know, right. we were like, you know. But we managed to stay busy. We did. We shot a short film that we both directed, co-directed, and I wrote something. So yeah, I couldn't take the busy out of the Kira, but but the world <laughs> wasn't cooperating very well right. during that time. <laughs> you know, you've done so many films over so many years. It's, it was difficult for me to try to figure out which ones to talk about. But I think I'm most attached to singles because I was 17 when it came Mm. out in 1992 and you and Bridget Fonda were playing these cool girls (laughs) with these cool lives. You guys were getting it on with hot grunge boys in Seattle. And then as a totally unnecessary sidebar, (laughs) I was over, I was (laughs) overstimulated by that movie because my real life neighbor, not when I was 17, but earlier from birth till 15, my real life neighbor was a woman named Colleen Dewhurst who was Campbell Scott's mom and so so for those of you who haven't seen singles Kira Sedgwick's love interest in singles is Campbell Scott and we would periodically they would have these fourth of July picnics and I would go over at like 11 or 12 and Campbell Scott was like in his 20s (laughs) and he would be on the lawn playing volleyball without a shirt and I would like completely go through puberty alone <laughs> in a corner just like managing a lot of tween feelings oh my God, and so right. when I was 17 and I got to watch Kira Sedgwick making out with Campbell Scott I was like yes that is amazing was, um so that also might be why singles <laughs> is my favorite Kira Sedgwick movie but there was also besides me and my horny tween memories there are a lot of other things to recommend the movie which is to say that you know like it had every Pearl Jam was in that movie and Soundgarden was in that movie and Alice in Chains were in that movie and it just sort of went down in history as this perfect little Gen X time capsule I'm just so curious like did it feel like the center of the youth culture universe at the time when you were making it or did all of that come later what were your thoughts on and what are your thoughts on the film now that well, it's been yeah. such a, a long time? Yeah. I mean, I, first of all, I'll just say that I think that movie really stands the test of time and the amazing it does. thing. It holds up. Yeah. The amazing thing is that kids in their twenties to talk to me about how it really resonates with them. Twenties now, you know, are like, even without the social media piece. And I mean, like the, like the, the phone piece and even without like, you know, what is so such a huge part of their world now, the social media, et cetera. Right. You know, uh, it's very, it really resonates on a feeling level, you know, on an emotional mm-hmm. level, which is everything, obviously. Um, not knowing who you are, trying to figure it out, trying to be your authentic self, trying to, you know, get laid, like trying to listen to music, like trying to have fun, but like feeling like a loser and, you know, being cool, but feeling like a loser. I knew that we were, that we were doing something cool because I thought Cameron Crowe was like so cool, you know, (laughs) and he had done Say Anything and, you know, he had done Fast Times at Ridgemont High and you knew he had his, and he'd written for Rolling Stone magazine. You knew he had the finger on the pulse of this cool music scene. So almost every night we would go out and hear some music and like, yeah, we heard Pearl Jam and like these little grungy clubs and, and then we heard Alice in Chains who actually played in the movie and, 
in Soundgarden and actually got to meet those guys, you know. Um, I didn't have scenes with them, but I did get to meet them. I love um, them so much. <laughs> yeah, and you knew it was cool, and it was. Uh, but I have to tell you, like being in in Seattle at that time, I mean, one of the things I was totally blown away was was like, what is up with all these coffee carts, and what is Starbucks, <laughs> and like people are, are so caffeinated here, and then it became like worldwide. But like at the time, yeah. it was so weird to just. I mean, my idea of coffee to go was like the Greek diner down the street, you know, right. was like blue. coffee regular. Yeah, right. Coffee, you know, white was sweet or whatever, light or dark or whatever. Crappy, thin t- t- coffee. And this was like this rich, dark. But it's so weird. It's like, it was so weird. It was like, what is this? I can just remember it so well, just going like, what's up with the coffee here? And then it became everywhere, like as soon as I got home. Um, and the music was different. And the look was different, right? Remember those shorts with like the shoes? I mean, I was in high school yeah. in this time. So I was all in this look. I was in the flannels. I was in the... Right. You know, that's like, so funny. I, I, so this, I definitely wore combat boots to the theater to watch singles. That's for sure. <laughs> oh my god, it was so cool. But you know what's so sad about that movie is that it didn't do well in the box office. It did. It was not. a sleeper. It was a sleeper later. Yeah. You know, which did fuck all for my career at the time. Let me tell you, <laughs> the people that would have liked it weren't going to the theater. They were going to shows. So that that's right. you know, yeah, it had to wait point. for its time to come. Good, good point. Good point. Because yeah, I didn't Campbell's see it till later, you know. You know what's weird also is that I did a I did a play with Campbell with Campbell Scott and Colleen Dewhurst before I did singles. Oh. Um, yeah, yeah, we did a play on we did All Wilderness, a Eugene O'Neill play on Broadway, and they they also did in rep they did Long Day's Journey into Night, which is also a Eugene O'Neill. Anyway. She was such a nice lady, but formidable. You oh, know what I mean? Like a, a force. Really formidable, but <laughs> yeah. so great. And such a mushball, really, but like strong, really yeah. strong. Loved her. <laughs> Loved her. Um, another film of yours that I mentioned earlier that I really liked was The Possession. It came mm. out in 2011, and I was really into it because I'm a Jewish girl who loves horror movies. And all of the good exorcism movies always involve the Catholic Church so intervening, funny. and they drive these goyisha demons out of the, these little <laughs> girls. But in The Possession, there's this dibbic for people who don't know, have never heard that word. It's a Jewish demon. Like, yes, Jews have demons too. We don't have hell. But somehow we have demons anyway. And in this particular movie, this Jewish demon gets into a girl and Matis Yahu has to come over from Crown Heights to get the spirit, evil spirit out of the girl. And I know, Kira, that you're Jewish on your mom's side. Do, did you feel similarly that we were getting left out of the culturally relevant possession genre and when you were offered this role as the you were the possessed girl's mom were you like yeah I'm representing for the chosen people like we get to have our exorcism movie now the chosen people have demons too I love this we have chosen demons well, right. I love that you're really getting into the meta of this whole thing, but I got to <laughs> tell you, it was not on my mind when I said yes to this movie, nor it was, nor was it when I shot this movie, nor was it after I finished this movie. But this is a whole new way to look at it, so I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, you probably don't get asked about this movie too much in interviews, but I just was... I was so happy to, you know, re- let's just say representation matters. And I was like, yeah, we got yes, one. Yes, I like that. <laughs> I love what are standard. your What are your feelings about supernatural stuff in general? Do you 
Do you like creepy ghosty? Do you believe in creepy ghosty? Are you not? I know you don't really make that kind of genre film very often. No, I mean, I don't. I I, I like and respect horror movies, especially really great ones. Like, I don't know, just The Witch came to mind. Like that was a oh, really I love that movie. like world that I didn't. Really, you know, I thought, I thought it, was it was boring because I love okay. gore. I got it. I yeah, got Callie it. and I are of two minds on this because yeah. I'm obsessed with the witch and Callie. Did I not love like a good blood spray, and I need more yeah. gore. Yeah, this was a little more high end, maybe a little too high. I'm end like for the you. special effects person, and and then I know some people are more like a psychological thriller, but I like a, yeah. a, a great blood spray. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah, I like those kind of movies. I mean, I definitely don't gravitate towards that. But God, I saw something really amazing. Do you guys ever? Do you guys see a, a movie um, called The Platform? No. no. Is it bloody? Dude, then I'm it's there. It's so creepy and weird. Oh my God, it's so weird and creepy. It's it's. Um, I think it, is it Mexican? I know they speak Spanish. It's beautifully done. Ooh, it's really creepy. And just suffice to say that hell is a place where you're basically in a like big um monochromatic building and on every platform you you uh, you live on a platform with one other person and you get and the food starts at the top of the platform and whatever's left over you get the food like the table for like you know, 10 minutes and you get to gorge, gorge, gorge. And then it <gasps> goes down to another table and whatever's left over that, that those <gasps> people have that gorge, gorge, gorge. So the lower the number of your floor, the less you have to eat. So you'll do oh anything. To, it's like some so sick it's like game. Dante's Inferno of food. Dude, it's so creepy. It's, it's so like creepy. Dante's Circles of Hell, but food. That will push so many of my yeah, buttons. Yeah, me too. With the food thing, I'm right with you, sister. It really was intense. I would like to know, Kira Sedgwick, are you a feminist? Definitely. Love it. That's great. <laughs> how what's your? I would like to know, how has your feminism impacted your career or vice versa? God, I mean, I think it has everything to do with who I am and what I've striven, you know, what I've hoped to be. Um, and I can tell you that, you know, growing up in a patriarchal world, starting work in this business as from the time I was 16, like this has been a, a fight, you know, it's been a fight for me to represent women that aren't like just sex objects. It's been a fight for me to, you know, not ask permission to be like, you know, bigger than I am, i.e. like the producer and the director, you know, um, to fight against that inner, you know, voice that's saying like, don't take too much and, oh, don't, don't speak too loud. And, you know, I mean, it's like, you know, I, those are internal struggles. Um, and my feminist is like, fuck that shit. You know, stop asking, you know, don't say sorry ever, you know, and then there's right. this female part of me. It's like, sorry for existing and whatever. So, you know, I think that it's a, it's a struggle, but certainly, I mean, look, I, I remember when I was first starting out, um, you know, I, it was a time of like a lot of, you know, teen movies where girls took off their clothes. And I was like, First of all, I, I remember saying to my agent, 
to like, I can never play just the girlfriend, like the girlfriend, like somebody else can do that. But like, I can't play just the girlfriend. Like she has to actually have a brain and, you know, she has to have her own opinion about things. And I I sort of like, I understood that that was not something that I wanted to, you know, I didn't want to just take my clothes off and like be objectified, especially if I didn't have a brain or like, uh, like didn't have a something to something in the movie that wasn't something just meaty. like just yeah yes exactly something like not just the girl I mean there were so many movies like that and the I mean there still are look frankly it's like you know they want to get the guy first they want to get the guy first you know because the women has the, has the I mean it's still pretty pretty I mean when you look at the the roles that are written for women now it's it, it, there's still a big discrepancy um but I certainly do you, so you, do you think they cast the guy first so that they get his opinion on the girl <laughs> that's that's interesting no I think they cast the guy first because usually monetarily it means more for a movie that, ah. like a, a movie guy movie stars in it I mean, unfortunately, mm-hmm. those are still the metrics to a certain degree. Um, and, you know, I, I definitely think that, you know, it, I've worked as a director on a lot of TV shows where, like, all the, the everyone around me is a man and I'm the only woman there. And, you know, and again, like, it's a, it's a great place to be. And it's sad that that's where the place is, you know. Um, when I'm the director of a film that's mine, I can crew and I can have more women around and, and not just make it 50, 50, but make it more like 70, 30 or 80, 20. But, but, you know, in a world where things have been done the same way for a really long time, it's, you know, on these, a lot of these shows, it's all me. It's I'm the direct female director and there's all the guys. Right on. And this is my final question, and it is a question that we ask all of our guests. And that get that question is, what you watching? And when I say what you watching, it is a broad question. We're talking about movies and TV and books and music, music videos and um, podcasts, anything that you are consuming pop culturally. We want to know about it because it is probably cool. Kira Sedgwick, what you watching? Well, I started the pandemic with normal people and I may destroy you and oh, insecure. Um, I uh, absolutely am into this Israeli um, show that's currently on Apple Plus called Finding Alice or Losing Alice. I can't remember. I think it's Finding Alice. Um, and it's Israeli and it's really cool. What's it I about? Also- it's about a female director who gets a really great gig to direct her husband and there may uh, in this psychosexual drama, and there may or may not have been a murder. With, with, and there, oh, I love when there may not or may not be a murder. Yeah, no, I I think you will like this one. It's very and it's sexy and it's weird, but it also has this like great female character, two female characters, the writer of the movie who seems to be like the like the black widow in a way like ensnaring this couple and this this female director and something that she wrote that may or may not be based on something that really happened to her and and as a su- murder suicide possibly oh. um but i also just love seeing a director depicted exactly the way i feel as a director which is like you're almost like this Svengali of this whole thing and you're like and you're so like turned on by the fact that you have this power, but also you're turned on like so creatively, but it like 
it, it really manifests itself in every part of your body as a female, you know, and seeing like seeing, you know, um, the way something should manifest on screen and like being able to create it and seeing her also surrounded by all these male, all these male uh, crew members because she didn't make the she wasn't able to make the crew herself. Anyway, it's super cool. And I really relate and I love it. That sounds um, awesome. I also really yeah. loved 40-year-old version um, that Oh, I heard that was oh, good. So good. Yeah. I also was obsessed with um with Nomadland. I just thought that was absolutely brilliant. I with haven't the, seen that one either. Frances McDormand, who's like beyond Oh, I love her. Oh I god, adore she's just her. I mean, she's just the shit. I mean, like we all want to be her when we grow up. Totally. I and, love that um, she never wears makeup to award ceremonies. I know I she is just banging. Her. Like she's just the, she's the person you want to be. You know, I, I don't know for me. Yeah, I'm in, oh, I'm, totally. I'm obsessed yeah. with her. Yeah. Um. So, and I am reading a book. Um. I think it's called Pretty Pictures. It's a, it's a, it's a sort of a pulpy kind of thing about an editor, a film editor, a female film editor who goes on to, um the set of this like weird Kate fear type uh, movie uh, that she's editing. And there also may or may not have been a murder. Oh, I love it. And it's really cool and really fun. And um, I'm loving all of these may not may not be murders. Yes, exactly. And, and I'm learning and I'm learning lines and working my ass off on call your mother. (laughs) I love it. That sounds great. I can't believe how fast this hour has flown by for me. You're so easy and fun to talk to. Thank you, you guys. Thanks for having me. We appreciate you so much. The arbiter of cool, you guys, you (laughs) pop charts. Well, you're in the club now. Yeah, and you're you're a pop tart now, lady. (laughs) Um, We're going to take the briefest of breaks, and then Callie and I are going to come back, and I'm going to ask Callie, and Callie is going to ask me what you watch. What you watch. Before we get back to the show, I want to tell you about our new sponsor, Wolfie Vibes Publicity. If you're working on a new project and find yourself in need of a kick-ass publicist who communicates well and works tirelessly to get you the coverage you're after, consider going to Wolfie Vibes Publicity. Wolfie Vibes Publicity is a female-owned and operated boutique PR firm that will get you where you need to be, and you'll even have fun in the process. Get in touch via wolfievibespublicity.com for details and quotes and tell them that Pop-Tart sent you. Essentially, I started it because every female comedian I know was amazing and hardworking and hilarious and I knew would make great podcasts and every male comedian I know already had a podcast and was doing their own thing. Hi, I'm Kate Moldenhauer, the founder of More Banana Podcasts, a comedy podcast network entirely produced, hosted, and led by women. We have shows about politics. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Get Civical. When the Supreme Court puts stuff on their calendar, they use the word docket. So their Google calendar is a docket. Is a docket. So technically, I have a docket. You have a docket. We all have docket. We all have a docket. Sex? Welcome to my vagina. I'm Jesse Karen. This is Rebecca Frank. What were ancient Greek dildos made of, Jesse? They were made of padded leather and, yep, anointed with olive oil. Yep. <laughs> scams? I'm Caitlin Bradley Smith. <laughs> and, and we, we love, love scams. scams. She tells them she's a German Russian heiress and she seems like she has a lot of money and people buy it. That's yeah. basically what's happening. So as soon as she got a loan, she would cash it as much as she could out before anybody caught on. 
It's Which amazing. Was so smart. I mean, so like smart. <laughs> I mean, it's terrible, but like to take that money out immediately. Because women are actually pretty versatile and funny. More Banana is a network of women's voices, unfiltered and uninterrupted. Find us everywhere you get your podcasts and learn about our growing roster of shows at morebanana.com. And we're back. Yes, yes, yes. Callie, we just spoke to Kira Sedgwick. Wasn't that something? It was something. I love it. Movie star. So, Callie... I gotta know, I want to know, I have an inclination to find out, what you watching? I've been revisiting Freaks and Geeks. Yeah, it's now streaming, I saw that. Yeah, um, it still holds up, except, you know, that James Franco is in it, but I'm not going to hold it against it, because nobody could tell he was going to become a creep. Um, and I'm really proud of Seth Rogen. He's been out there for so long and not problematic. <laughs> yeah, if anything, he's been like... Very vocally awesome online throughout. I mean, I'm sure he's done something problematic. I haven't really Googled it, but nothing comes to mind. Well, we're all, we are all God's children. (laughs) We all all have our moments. I know he does troll politicians online and I like that. I've been watching Mr. Mayor on Peacock. It's actually really fucking funny, but it got dog reviews. Yeah, I I didn't watch it because I, I really like Tina Fey and Robert Carlock and I was sad when I saw that people didn't like it. But I should try it. I like it. I mean, it's like lighthearted, you know, Ted Danson, you know, humor. Um, Vela Lovell, I think that's how you say her name. She plays the chief of staff, and I absolutely fucking love her. She was on My Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. We should also have her in bust. She was like the friend that always had like the streaks in her hair and weird yeah, stocky uh-huh. hats. I love yeah. her, and she's really good in it. I like it. I mean, I guess don't go into it expecting too much, and you'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> Keep my expectations low. All right. Well, that was what I was watching. What are you watching, dude? Oh, thank you so much for asking. Um, the Kitten Bowl and the Puppy Bowl were both on on Sunday. I thought it was crazy that they had them on at the same time. I, I'm like, come on, guys. Um, so, And you had to choose, like, Hallmark That's Channel for Kittens rude. or, or uh, Animal Planet for Puppy Bowl. Luckily, Animal Planet on Roku, you could you could just stream the Puppy Bowl after it aired. Oh, okay. So then I flipped over to there, and um, the hosts for the Puppy Bowl were Martha Stewart and Snoop Dogg, and they were drinking cocktails and cuddling very cute puppies, and it was so cute. So after I watched that Festival of Cuteness, I watched two depressing documentaries oh, no. <laughs> about how our uh, how our pop culture meat grinder tears young women apart. Oh, no. The first one was the New York Times presents Framing Britney Spears on Hulu. Oh, and, free um, Britney. It, yeah, definitely hashtag free Britney. It's all about her conservatorship and how her dad came to control every aspect of her life. She's almost 40 now. That's so whack. No control over her life and her finances, and it's really something. And and then when she, when she had that break up with Justin Timberlake. Like in my mind, I think of Justin Timberlake. I think of him on Saturday Night Live and being a talented and affable gentleman. But then they showed all these clips of him going on all like these shock jock radio shows and talking about fucking how he fucked Britney Spears. Oh, right. Because she was saying that they didn't have sex and then he said that, which is fucking rude as fuck. Like I, 
it was <laughs> he basically went on like a smear campaign basically calling that. her a whore it was not okay britney's mom was talking about how like you know she had these two babies like one after another and that her that whole mental breakdown with the head shaving everyone was like oh britney's crazy it was really just like a, a double dose of postpartum depression um and then the other very depressing documentary i watched was on abc's 2020 they did tragic beauty anna nicole smith she died in 2007 and that felt like it was just yesterday. And everything that happened with that was crazy. But so now Anna Nicole Smith's baby, who was just a newborn when she died, is 14 now. What? And that little baby looks just like her. I forgot. How did Anna Nicole die? It was sort of an accidental overdose, but it was also, and this was crazy too, like she was getting these injections of b12 and some other kind of hormone to make her lose weight and the injection site got really infected and she had like 105 fever and she didn't want to go to the hospital because she didn't want the paparazzi to swarm all over her and so she insisted not to go to the hospital even though she was spiking this crazy fever and she was also in a world of grief because i don't know if you remember her son came to visit her in the Bahamas when she gave birth and crawled into bed next to her. And she woke up in the morning and her 20 year old son was dead next to her what? in the bed. No, I did not. How? He died of an accidental overdose. Oh my um, he was on Wellbutrin, I think uh-huh. it was either Wellbutrin or Lexapro. And then he took something like Xanax ish for the flight. Cause he was afraid to fly. But then when he was there was an autopsy done when he died they found those two things and morphine in his system which created an accidental overdose because they interacted and she was always taking morphine because those giant fake boobs of her had her in constant pain for her entire adult life ever since she got breast implants oh like her body was not at all capable of holding them up but the thing with the injections which gave her the fever that made her die but she was already sort of falling apart because her son died was that they found out later they found out when they did the autopsy after she died that she had this disease called Hashimoto's that causes like really rapid weight gain throughout your life and it's like an inflammatory autoimmune disease and it causes weight gain and it causes depression and it causes um like pay, body pain. So sort of so similar she, to like a thyroid where it's all hard to detect yeah. and, and really. Right. And so if she had actually had good medical care and not like these Dr. Feelgoods just prescribing her as much morphine as she wanted and getting her hooked on pills for her entire life, because like her being fucked up in public and everything, it was all morphine that she was like trying to boost with alcohol because she had um, built up such a high tolerance. Like wasn't she, she married wasn't to a really old guy. Yes. And she was married to J. Howard Marshall. And the other thing that was so sad was that apparently he asked her to marry him four different times. And she kept saying she didn't want to be seen as a gold digger because he, she was poor and he was rich and she wanted to make it on her own before she would ever say yes to marrying him because according to her, she actually loved him and she knew him for many years. That's sweet. 
And the last thing I've been watching, of course, is the uh, yes. Majestic Pop-Tarts Patreon page, which is our way of helping to keep Bust alive. And we hope that you will help us to help keep Bust alive by visiting the page that we've put together at patreon.com slash Podcast. Callie, I don't know if you saw over the weekend, we got another Patreon I patron. Saw. It was so great. Um, Callie and I, with help from Team Bust, have been creating all these incentives for people to sponsor us in this show. And we have all kinds of goodies to give away if you want to become a sponsor. Like, we have exclusive show notes for all 102 episodes. So when we um, say what you're watching and our different celebrity guests tell us, and when Callie and I tell each other what, what we've been watching, in those show notes, you can go in there and click on links to what everybody has been watching for all 102 episodes. So if you're not sure what to watch, you can just go into those files and, and find your next favorite thing. We also have ad-free episodes. We have exclusive content. We have things like Zoom chats with Callie and I and prize packages of swag and all kinds of other goodies for all different price points and sponsorship levels. Please check out our site at patreon.com slash Podcast. And help us keep Bust alive as a treasured feminist pop cultural institution. I would also like to thank our luscious producer and sound engineer, Logan Del Fuego, for helping us make this episode. Muy caliente, Logan. And our girl gang at Bust Magazine. You can find me on Twitter at Emily Rems and on Instagram at Rems Emily, but you cannot find Callie on social media, so don't try, right? No, 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 no. You can email us both, though. I'm at Emily Rems at bust.com. Callie W at bust.com. And you can learn more about this show at bust.com slash Pop-Tarts. And finally, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. We super duper appreciate it. It really helps us get the word out. Until next time. And he would be on the lawn playing volleyball without a shirt. And I would like completely go through puberty alone in a corner. It's like clockwork, but annoying clockwork. (laughs) 